Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Review of Two Dice Geoengineering Podcast. I'm here with a Petra Caldera, a bit of a yeah. mouthful, but I managed to get that out after on my <laughs> second try. So um with and here with here to talk about greening deserts using desalination and renewable electricity. So welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Okay. So you've got a paper out. Do you want to give us the title and where it's published? Yeah, it's um, Afforesting Arid Land with Renewable Electricity and Desalination to Mitigate Climate Change. And we published it in Nature Sustainability, came out in oh, February this year. Yeah, last month. Okay. So um, can you give me a bit of background to you and your career? Where do you work? What's your situation? I've not, you're not come to my notice previously, so uh, I'm interested uh, yeah. to know what your academic background is. Yeah, well, I'm currently... well researcher at the Lude University in Finland. And my area of research has been on uh, desalination systems with renewable electricity. So the focus has been to see how you could get low-cost water if you use desalination plants in areas with high water stress using renewable electricity. So uh, so then you don't have, uh, you don't produce emissions and you don't make water scarcity worse. So we start, we did this piece of work because well, this is about using desalinated water to grow forests in arid lands. And we thought if we can produce desalinated water at low cost, and it's also uh, sustainable water production, then what about using it to grow trees in uh, degraded and arid places of the earth? Yeah. Well, I have questions. So yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't really understand why you'd want to grow forests for a start, yeah. because grasslands yeah. are a lot less water hungry. And they yeah. can store a similar amount of carbon. So why would you use a forest when you could just use some grass? Well, we actually, we don't really touch grasslands um, as such. First, we looked at where, because there was a paper out that talked about tree restoration potential and the areas where you could actually have trees grown. We took those locations around the world and we looked at where water stress was high and we identified those as areas where there are areas with the potential to grow trees and there are areas also with high water stress. So then growing trees there doesn't would not be that great. It would not work out well. So then we could use desalinated water. And then also we looked at bare lands and to grow trees. And we looked, we wanted to create sort of trees that or forests, a sort of natural forest that can have can help with precipitation, can help cool down the climate in hot parts of the world. And yeah, so that's that's why we decided to go with looking at forests. Okay. So do you think that this would be cross-applicable to grasslands or other biomes, or do you think that this is very focused on um, on forests? I mean, I, I know your, your study included only forests, but in theory, yeah. someone else could come and apply this to another yeah. ecosystem so is that a sensible thing to do with your work or would that just be stupid to do that i i'm not sure how much um it probably would make sense uh because i think you could use this to even grow crops like diatropha yeah, for, for instance in some cases but it would make sense but you would need to see how much co2 can be sequestered in grasslands over time and how that impacts the cost of sequestration um, because desalinated water is quite expensive. So, yeah, so the cost, CO2 sequestration would be a big factor to see if it's um, cost competitive or attractive. Yeah, the reason I mentioned grasslands is because grasslands are much less water hungry 
than uh, forest fires. I would have thought you get much more result for your water than you would Mm. by using a forest. Uh, I just wonder if you could give a bit more attention to that question. Um, Yeah, no, that's that's a fair point. We we, you could possibly use desalinated water, but and yes, then there would be less water demand for the grasslands. But I think that would be something that needs to be looked into specifically for grasslands. We could use a similar okay. approach to what we have done now and sort of apply it to the characteristics of grasslands. Okay, so the other question I've got is why desalination? What benefit does desalination give you? Because it's a very energy-hungry process mm. um, and deserts are very dry. Yeah. Uh, and so you can't, you know, you can't just desalinate the water. You've got to move the water around. You've got to take yeah. it to where you want to go, right? So yeah, you can't yeah. just go and do desalination in, in the absence of any water transport. You've got to yeah. transport the water anyway. So yeah. an option when you're doing water transport is to not to bother desalinating it, but use a variety of other techniques. So one of the techniques is to grow something that's equivalent of salt marsh. So you turn the deserts into like a brackish marsh, marshland. So they're tolerant of much more, they've got much more salt tolerant um uh, plants in and the other one is to use an evaporative process rather than the desalination process so you have salt ponds or salt fountains or salt um, uh, cooling towers where you're relying on the um, uh, the the environment to concentrate the water so if you have a, if you imagine lot, lots of power station cooling towers where you had water spraying down on pack beds or you know something equivalent of towels that are being mm-hmm rotated around in and out of the water then you could you could wet the environment through evaporation which wouldn't require you to have a very energy intensive desalination process so what's the point of using something you would use for drinking water to make water that was suitable for use in on on such a large scale we need large amounts of water and i for trees and because if you grow trees in areas that are dry then uh, it could potentially just use up groundwater resources and essentially make water stress in those regions even worse. So so therefore we need to supply water. We need an additional water supply. And desalinated water is not it's not new. Um, it, it's it's actually growing the capacities are growing quite rapidly in the Middle East and in drier regions of the world because you have increasing levels of water stress. And it will provide water um, the quantities that are required to grow these trees. I, I don't know if the, if any of the other technologies or solutions that you would mention could provide water at that at that capacity that is required by the forest. Um, well, the point I'm making is that there's two fundamental ways of supplying water, okay, if you want to supply plants yeah. with water, right? You can use conventional irrigation. Yeah. So you're wetting the soil, right? So you're applying water to the soil and then the water is uh, available to the plants, okay? Yeah. Or you can you can supply water to the environment generally. So you're yeah. basically trying to induce clouds and rainfall. I mean, your your work yeah. considers uh, creating carbon sequestration on a grand yeah. scale, right? You're looking yeah. at something that's the size of, the, of a desert, like you think of the Gobi Desert or the Sahara Desert. These are vast areas of land, right? Yeah. Now, in yeah. theory... You could supply these areas by using environmental approaches. Okay, so instead of supplying water to an individual tree or mm-hmm. a, you know an area of trees that through conventional agricultural irrigation, like you might yeah. see in 
in the western US where they do a lot of irrigated agriculture yeah. or some parts of the east of England, right, where that's also quite common, is it's a rather dry place. You can alternatively have an environmental approach so that you're just trying to put as much water into the ecosystem as possible and you're not actually trying to apply it to individual locations. What you're trying to do is just wet the entire desert area, okay? So you can do that by the creation of lake, like inland lakes or seas or whatever or by having mechanical approaches that would rely on fountains and things like that to just put lots and lots of evaporated water into the environment and so that it would it would just be so humid that you'd either have plants that like air plants that can absorb the water from the air or alternatively that you'd get the formation of clouds and rain because you're adding so much more moisture to the environment that you'd eventually get uh, rain forming naturally because you're artificially adding humidity to the environment so is it not more energy efficient if you've got something the size of the sahara desert which is like a thousand miles in one direction and then two thousand miles in another direction maybe rather longer then surely you can you can use an environmental approach to irrigate that area rather than using kind of a mechanical approach right so the reason i'm suggesting that that's a good idea is because instead of having to put any energy yourself to do all of the desalination instead you're going to be putting the you're basically exposing the the water to the sun's energy by running it over if you can imagine you get a black towel and hang it up on a washing line then that black towel is going to get very hot and if it's in direct sunlight and it will quickly evaporate the water from it so if you imagine a machine that dips towels black towels into water and then raises them up in the air then if you had a number of these machines then it would wet the entire environment around them without having to put in any extra energy so did you consider using these environmental approaches as an alternative to the uh, to the a conventional piped desalination process that you've used in the paper? We did not look at those kind of methods, but um, when first of all, like we're looking at arid, like because we're considering dry regions where there is no renewable water resource, so we have to find a way of getting water from someplace to those regions. And for us, desalination systems exist. They already exist. And they they are actually, technology that we use was reverse osmosis. And they are much more energy efficient than the conventional evaporative desalination technology. So that Okay, so just, just to give people a brief, because I've, yeah. I've got a reasonable understanding of this. So there's a couple of ways that you can do desalination. That you would either uh, desalinate by um, forcing the material through a membrane which is reverse osmosis so you have a very high pressure system and it basically squidges the water in Mm -hmm. through a membrane and then the alternative is that you boil off the water um, which you can do through fossil fuels or nuclear energy or whatever and then you would condense that um, thermally and then it would make the um, water desalinated because the salt the brines remain right yeah yeah yeah, okay. exactly. Um, yeah. Now, and, there's, a, there's a third way potentially to do it, which is the equivalent of freeze-drying, right? So does any desalination work on pressure methods like that or not? Uh, well, reverse osmosis works on pressure because you apply very high yeah, but pressure. That's an eleva- yeah, but that's an elevated pressure. It's a, you're, you're not evaporating the water using pressure. You're boiling no. the water using heat, right? In a, in a thermal desalination system, yes. And it's a much energy inefficient system compared to reverse osmosis. For a sort of example, in this system, when we, we assumed 
in 2030, the desalination technologies would have uh, uh, energy consumption of three kilowatt hours of electricity per cubic meter of water produced. Whereas if we had taken something that was thermal based, then it would be about the most efficient would be about 40 kilowatt hours of thermal energy per cubic meter of water produced. So for us, it's more energy efficient to use the electric electricity based reosmosis system. And in the paper, we actually considered the electricity demand for pumping water from the coast to the the nodes where we would have AFR station. We would we would need to supply the water, and we use the irrigation system to get water to all those points, all the trees. Uh, and we actually got the irrigation. We use the subsurface drip irrigation systems, and apparently they're being used in Oman at the moment for date palm plantation. So we use sort of the same numbers and the same equipment. So to be clear, what well. we're talking about here, you're considering subsurface drip irrigation. So yeah. subsurface drip irrigation is basically a leaky hose pipe you bury in the ground. Yeah. Now, the advantage of that is it's very water efficient yeah. when you're looking at using it for small scale irrigation. Yeah. But the problem that you're using drip irrigation is that when you're looking at this on a much broader scale, as you are using in this study, mm-hmm. then addition of water to the environment is beneficial in a way that on a farm scale it's not. If if you've got a farm that's, for example, even a large farm might be one kilometre by one kilometre, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's quite a large farm by, say, British standards. Obviously, American farms are rather bigger, but yeah. a British farm that's a kilometre by a kilometre is still a decent-sized farm, right? Yeah. So if you're adding in any material into that environment, which is then blown around, and that could be fertiliser or water or whatever, then it's lost. But in your model, then it's not because you're operating on the scale of sort of thousands of kilometers, right? Yeah. So the point I'm making is that the drip irrigation approach doesn't seem to have any obvious benefits because if your scale of operation is a thousand kilometers by a thousand kilometers, then you might as well just use conventional spray irrigation because the drip irrigation is more expensive to install and you actually get a benefit from the environmental addition of water because it's going to cause rain clouds to form you're basically trying to create a rainforest right and the rainforest is going to have a lot of rain right yeah so why are you using drip irrigation why does that make any sense we used it because it's highly efficient the amount of water that is required has very high impact on the cost of the system and so subsurface irrigation systems would we assume like 95 percent efficiency meant that most of the water we supplied could go straight into the trees um, no, I get it. I understand. Yeah. I understand that the logic of small-scale irrigation systems. But what yeah. I'm saying is that a conventional drip irrigation system, mm-hmm. the assumption that you're making is that water that's lost to evaporation yeah. is not beneficial. And that is entirely correct if you're, if you're considering it at the farm scale. But if you're considering it at biome scale, that assumption doesn't apply because the water that's lost to evaporation isn't useless because that yeah. water will form, will form rain clouds and that yeah. rain will fall elsewhere in what used to be a desert. Yeah. So why would you use drip irrigation, which is a much, much more expensive technique, rather than just spraying the water around willy-nilly into the environment and letting it and letting it evaporate and form rain clouds? Because the, the extra manufacturing cost of a, and construction cost of a drip irrigation system doesn't give you any benefit if you're still recovering the evaporated water because that water is going into forming rain clouds which remain in the desert that you're operating in um i think the the point like because we're looking at very dry uh, 
dry areas where there is not much and we want to grow the trees. I don't know if we if we, um, if we just use uh, spray irrigation systems just to put water around when there are no trees there and allow would just generate rainfall or would just evaporate and not really be as effectively taken up by the growing trees. So I think it's something that would need to be more looked into uh, because I, 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 yeah, I'm not aware. I, I'm not sure if that like the water that we would use in those kind of conditions would necessarily um, produce rain, rain clouds because there are no trees at the start. Well, where where do you where do you think it would go? I mean, like if you put if you put the amount of water into the environments you're talking yeah. about, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about thousands. I mean, not just thousands of square kilometers. You're talking about a thousand kilometers by a thousand kilometers, which well, is yeah. millions, right? So you're talking about like on the scale of millions of square kilometers, right? And so at that scale, any water that you add anywhere in the environment, as long as it doesn't sink into the ground. Is going to end up forming, you know, it's going to be part of the hydrological cycle. So, if you think about the Amazon rainforest, for example, right, a great deal of the water that's in the Amazon rainforest doesn't come from water that's injected into the system. It comes from water that's recycled within the system, right? So, that rain just goes round and round and round. And what I'm saying is that that's a humidity driven process. Yeah. So that if you have lots of additional humidity, if you get the Sahara and you added a huge amount of humidity, yeah. eventually you just have rain clouds forming naturally. Yeah. And you wouldn't um, have to worry about putting all this yeah. complicated, expensive drip irrigation infrastructure in, right? Yeah. Also, we we only account for 20% of the land in desert lands or bare lands for afforestation. We don't consider beyond that. When we looked at for these kind of... De- for this system, like subsurface irrigation systems, they are currently being used in large scales in for plantation, so like date palm plantations, for example, in Oman. Of course, they're much less dense than what we imagine in this in this model. And yes, it is expensive. But at the same time, there is research, for instance, that says if you green the Sahara, it's a part of the Sahara. The rain, rainfall doesn't necessarily, based on their model, does not necessarily fall in that region. It's only a maximum of 26% that falls in the region. So it's... So you're saying that it's still essential, even on those very large scales, it's still essential to control losses. So yes. you don't want your the water to be exiting the system. And even if you've got a million square kilometers, a lot of that water would still exit the system, right? Yeah, yes. So, okay. And you also say that you've got 20% of your area is going to be covered in the forest that you add right yeah yeah so what happens to the other 80 percent we that we did not want to take into account we we were not really thinking of transforming the whole desert into because we were not really we were not sure of the you know the the other environmental aspects of it and so we stuck to 20 percent for the desert spaces um and the rest we can, yeah. That's we haven't touched that part of the remaining. Well, 80%. I don't. I think it would be be unreasonable to suggest that you haven't touched that part. I mean, for 
I mean, there are, there are several effects that I can think of. So first, you're going to have a direct effect on the humidity, right? So yeah. if you've got these trees that are engaging in evapotranspiration constantly, right? Yeah. Then it will change the humidity in surrounding areas, right? Yeah. And so yeah. at night when it's cold in the desert, and it gets very cold in the desert at yeah. night, right? Yeah. Then you would have condensation, and then you get yeah. mosses and lichens. Yeah, exactly. Yes, true. Potentially true. ferns, and you'd also yeah. get things like air plants forming. Yeah. Where you know where, where this additional humidity allows them to grow yeah. the other thing is that you would have an island effect right so you'd have like oases where it's yeah. very wet similar to a desert yeah. oasis where you might yeah, get date exactly. palms and mm-hmm. stuff that naturally grow right yeah. and then you'd have species that are, that need a bit of water but can survive yeah. in the desert and yeah. so you might find that you're changing the desert biome quite significantly by adding more water-dependent species, particularly animals that might go into these oases to uh, to feed yeah. or to get water, but then they might be able to survive in drier areas around the desert more generally, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's going to have a massive effect on the desert. Yes, that's it, true. A that is, that's something that needs to be looked into further. I mean, uh, of course, the, the point is like the desert, if you're looking at the Middle East, for instance, it just keeps getting hotter and then is more an expansion of desert and degraded land. Um, so, in fact, I think the Middle East, is, they just started this Middle East Green Initiative, which is about reforesting their lands with forests, with native species. And they want to sort of, I guess, get back the degraded land and bring it back to restore it to, its, to a better state because it helps them fight sandstorms and cool down temperature and so on. So there are all these benefits that are obvious and there are also the things to consider like you said like yes if we do have 20 percent, then it's not just going to be restricted 20 percent. it will impact the other parts of the desert we don't know to what extent and that is something that needs to be studied i guess further what i think is interesting is that fact that we're adding water additional water into this dry system and how that affects the rainfall, where it affects rainfall, it's all very, it's it's unknown. And I think it's, uh, yeah, it needs, it's quite interesting, but it needs to be looked into. Well, I can imagine that um, desert species might be yeah. very profoundly affected by this. And while they're not as biodiverse as rainforests, they still have their own unique ecosystems with, you know, all manner of uh, plants and animals that live in very dry a semi-desert or desert environments, and I'd imagine they're going to be pretty strongly affected. But more than that, what about the circulation effects on the atmosphere and the albedo effects? Because the Sahara Desert is quite pale in colour. If you look at it from space, it's like a kind of whitish yellow, right? Whereas if you look at Congo Basin, which is a few thousand kilometres to the south of it, Mm -hmm. then it's a very dark green. And so yeah. although you're storing a lot of carbon, you've also got a lot of optical effects. Now that's changed, that, you know, that's amended somewhat by the fact that you've got a lot of clouds over the Congo, right? Yeah. But you've still, on average, got a darker area mm-hmm. uh, when you've got a rainforest than you've got when it's desert, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so when we grow, when we try to convert land desert lands into forests then it would reduce the albedo effect um but then also because we're adding more water into the system then it would have also bring about a more cooling effect sort of because the ideally what we want is to then sort of create a like a rainforest humid area and so that should 
um, re result in finally a cooling down of their local temperature. Because like, unlike rainforest in areas where there is no water, which would increase result in an increase in local temperature, this system where we would add water in the system should bring about a more cooling effect. Yeah, but it's a local cooling. But yeah. if you're creating, yeah, I mean, if it's wetter, then you're 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 drawing the water, and as you're drawing the water, you you're creating a vapor, and you have to put energy yeah. in to break the bonds, yeah. and therefore there's a local cooling effect. But I'm not yeah. talking about that. I'm talking about the global heating effect because the the addition of when you when you dry up the water, the heat doesn't go away; it just turns from sensible heat into latent heat, yeah. right? Yeah. Whereas what I'm talking about is the actual energy balance of the Earth, and if you're if you're absorbing heat from the sun or infrared yeah. energy from the sun, right, mm -hmm. and, and heating up the Earth because the the dark green leaves of your trees are absorbing energy that shiny white desert wouldn't. Yeah. To mm -hmm. that's going to cause changes both to the circulation yeah. effect because you, you know you're you're creating different large scale atmospheric circulation, mm -hmm. and you're also adding a lot of energy into the system because you've got a whole bunch of uh, extra energy that's being absorbed which would otherwise have just been reflected directly back into space yes okay so um, there was actually a paper done on this they looked at the impacts of uh, greening the sahel and uh, desert in australia and what they found was that through Initially, it will have about, I think... For Do you remember which paper this is? Just Ornstein AL. Because this is actually something that even had, like, I had reviewers ask, like, okay, what is this and stuff. So, yeah, okay, sorry, it's Yosef et al. And it has these authors, Rothenberg and Yakir, and they look at a lot of this impact of growing forest in arid conditions. Um Okay, so it's called large-scale semi-arid afforestation can enhance precipitation and carbon sequestration potential in nature scientific reports. Okay. Yeah. What do they find? And they find that there. So when they afforest this this region, the Sahara in the Sahel and in Australia, they found that there's about six years of heat heating because an increase in temperature because of the growth of the trees, but what they find is CO2 sequestered of the trees ultimately sort of compensate for the extra heating provided by the trees. And the tree's lifetime is about 100 years. So it's only about six years of heating and then if impact. And then because of the CO2 sequestered, you have a net sort of uh, cooling impact finally. What about the long-term sequestration? Because can you make the forest ecosystem lay down leaf litter and dead plant matter for long periods of time that would improve so like a mangrove will continually sequester carbon in sediments right yeah. is it possible to make your desert for your new forest that you're growing on desert land yeah is it possible to make those um, forests lay down very significant amounts of soil organic carbon over a period of decades uh, would be based on the type of trees that we would have uh but for in this case, what we did is we um, we sort of took the trees and we kind of modeled it in a way that based on literature, for example, we find that rainforests generally, when they mature, they have between 11 to 14 ter tons of carbon per hectare per year that they sequester. And we ensured that we don't exceed that limit. So, for example, in our system, even by 2100, we have a maximum of 10 
tons uh, tons of carbon per hectare per year and um and that includes do you, like do you say a, 10 so 10 tons of carbon per hectare per year yeah is that right i mean that doesn't yeah. sound a lot really i mean if you think about a ton of water is only yeah. a meter by a meter by a meter it's like yeah. a jacuzzi will hold a ton of water yeah and a hectare is 100 meters by 100 meters right yeah so that's like 10 jacuzzis full of water <laughs> per by 100 meters square per year it doesn't sound like a lot of sequestration to me it's not it's not but but then we are talking about a large land area so uh, finally what we do get is about in total um, about 730 tons gigatons of carbon co2 that can be sequestered in all the land that we have looked at in this research and what about uh, nutrient limitations i should imagine that nutrients Mm -hmm. are a big limitation factor for you right yeah yes yeah so we uh, it is and we assumed the use of fertilizers and we took a fertilizer cost but of course depends on finally the type of trees that people want to plant in those regions and also depending on trees i mean some trees can be nitrogen fixing and you know provide its create its own nutrient supply and so ultimately that depends on the type of trees that the people would want to plant in those regions like suppose the more native it is the better and easier it would be to grow those trees yeah but i mean like phosphorus is a globally limited nutrient isn't it i mean yeah like potassium you can take from the yeah. sea and nitrogen you can take from the air so yeah you can acquire those on a fairly sustainable basis yeah. right but phosphorus is a challenge so if we're going to do some large-scale forestation mm-hmm. then to what extent are we able to do that with the fertilizer availability that we've got at the moment? Yes. Did you consider that in your study or not? No, no, we did not consider the limitations of fertilizers in this. It's a pretty big limit, right? You're talking about greening the deserts. You're, you're talking about an area of land, which is probably not miles away from what we've got in arable production in the world at the moment, right? So, you know, we don't typically put a lot of fertilizer onto pastures. The pastures just grow and then the, the cattle come along and graze the pastures right but arable land is quite heavily fertilized and that you know those cultivated crops uh wheat or you know apples things like that you know that's where the fertilizers and uh, agrochemicals go right yeah. and the amount of the total amount of area that you have available to you in the deserts of the world if you've got you know the atacama and the sahara and the gobi yeah. desert you know and yeah. all of these major deserts that you know parts of the u.s are desert as well and if you're looking at, at using, you know, very large areas of the world for carbon storage, you can only really do that um, in a meaningful way if you're going to green a lot of the deserts. Now, if you're taking a land area which is equivalent to or potentially larger than the amount of land that's in horticultural or agricultural use, and then using and trying to grow trees on them, it's very difficult to see how you could do that without adding a load of nutrients in. And if you haven't considered that, I'm a bit puzzled as to why the results are meaningful. Because if we find that we're using so much fertilizer that we haven't got enough fertilizer left for anything else, or we won't have enough fertilizer after a few decades for anything else, then doesn't that become essentially entirely unviable? Um, well, because we were growing sort of native trees in those regions and you you would need fertilizers for the first like i don't know how many years of growth of the trees but ultimately like they recycle like you have the litter and everything that is recycled and that contributes to the soil and produces 
it makes the soil quality better and can sustain the forest. Um, it is yeah, true. I appreciate if, you get um, when you get to a sort of steady state point of view, and you're not adding yeah. any extra carbon. You don't necessarily need any yeah. more fertilizer, but yeah. until you're at that point, then you need to keep adding it, and that could be for a century, right? We actually took those numbers from because in Egypt they're actually growing in Luxor in Egypt in the desert. They're actually growing a forest there. They don't use desalinated water; they use wastewater, treated wastewater, and it's a fully grown like forest and it's amazing because it's in it's a desert region and in this area there are these forests that are growing and they do provide fertilizers there but it also i mean the litter and everything that is produced by these trees also ultimately fertilize the soil so i guess it it is it is something that has to be considered but it also depends on the type of trees that we would use and and for how long you would need to use it for and what about the uh what you might call the infrastructure requirements, the human and uh, environmental infrastructure that's got to be put in. Are you going to be putting in um, just the piping network and then the trees grow themselves? Or are you going to have to have hordes of people or robots tending to these trees mm-hmm. to grow them? How, how's it going to work? Yeah, we we took into account maintenance costs and operation costs and all of these things um, that are currently considered reforestation projects. Um, and so we do imagine that there would be a certain amount of maintenance that is required. Um, some, maybe some people to go make sure everything is okay or robots. It could be likely. We took that into account in terms of cost. Uh, yeah, we're not sure how long. And that's, I think, one of the limitations is we don't really know how long we need to. We assumed a study period of 70 years, but we're not sure if people are required for 70 years or how long you know maintenance is required for. Okay, and it, what co-benefits? Because I think this study only looks at carbon, doesn't it? But yeah. I imagine if you're growing all this timber, then people are going to do all kinds of things. So, for example, you could grow fruit trees, yeah. um, you grow timber for construction. Yeah. You don't only have to have it as carbon storage, right? So no. how do you view this? Would What I'm trying to understand is not just you know what the, what the, what the value, the financial value of these things are, these yeah. products that you might get from the forest, yeah. But also to understand whether you're going to have towns and stuff growing yeah. inside this, whether yeah. people are going to be, is there going to be a road network that will allow people to extract timber, yeah. for example? Well, we don't imagine, at least for 70 years, people using it for timber. It could be used for timber, yes, depending on the type of trees. Uh, but we do imagine that there would maybe be agroforestry maybe there would be crops that grow near neighbor near this forest that there would be towns that come up because there is water supply there and that as they do for example in the middle east right now with the middle east green green initiative is they're planting um, trees that produce different types of fruits and they want to use it to actually meet most of their food local production local demand so there are many many such Many many co benefits. The there's a there was a paper on the, the the what do you call this the green the green belt in the Sahel, and they and they realized like every euro every dollar that is invested in restoration they get about between one point two to four dollars back or so. So that and that was for this the green Sahel 
the green belt there. And have you taken that into account or are you no. only costing the carbon benefits? No, we, we did not take any of that into account. Um, for this for this paper, we just looked into the CO2 cost, uh, just the cost that is required, but we did not see what would be the benefits. Can you talk me through the cost? Because you, you had an interesting assumption, didn't you, on the cost about declining cost of energy? And a lot of papers admit yeah, yeah. to include the declining cost of energy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because we assume um, the cost of uh, most PV and and wind, and we see the declining cost. We assume the future cost based on the learning rates. In fact, actually, up to 2050 is only when we assume the declining cost of these energy systems, because beyond that, we don't really have numbers. So we keep the numbers the same as 2050 for all the years after 2050. So in fact, we would probably even see a lower cost of uh, electricity post 2050 than what we have in this paper. And you didn't look at using nuclear? Uh, no, we did not look at using nuclear. I mean, I was I would suggest that there's a very obvious way to use nuclear. So you can use quite simple, quite safe boiling water reactors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can just generate huge amounts of steam. And one of the advantages of generating steam is that it will rain out almost immediately because you've got more than 100% humidity. So if you've got a boiling water reactor that's just mm-hmm. open to the environment, it's basically just yeah. a giant kettle, yeah. and that that water will condense into clouds and form down as fall down as rain or fog very, very quickly, right? And so it's perfectly possible to have a, a series of boiling water reactors that's supplied with seawater and then drained of brine all around the desert. The, the slight complication is that with a desal plant, you would normally put them on the coast and then reject the brine directly into the ocean. Yeah. Whereas in, if you put nuclear reactors around, it would make more sense to vent them to the atmosphere and then use the atmosphere to do your work rather than the piping, but then you'd have to reject the brine. So you'd have to have briny rivers that were all briny piping yeah. that would take the brine back out to the ocean and dispose of it, right? So, yeah. that, you know, that it's not a direct replacement mm-hmm. for a renewable system, but yeah. did you did you consider, you know, not necessarily mathematically, but did you consider at least the possibility of using nukes to mm-hmm. generate the energy that you needed or not? No, we did not look into the use of nuclear um, systems. Um, if we just because we, we were like we need the least cost electricity supply here to grow to run the desalination plants and yeah and so we we used the system mostly used PV and wind. Um, yeah, but yeah. you don't need you don't. What I'm saying with nuclear energy, you don't need electricity. It's an entirely electric. Other than the pumps, there's no electricity mm-hmm. required because what you're doing is you're just simply boiling water away, right? And so you would heat the water directly, and, and it's an entirely thermal process with no electricity being involved at all. You basically just have a big swimming pool for nuclear fuel, put the water on top of it, and it boils it away. It's a very, very simple process, right? And those boiling water reactors are very, very safe because they're designed with a negative void coefficient. So as the, water, the reactor gets hotter and more in more power, then it generates more voids because more steam is formed and it boils the water. And, and, and because the water acts um, uh, with, with, a, with a negative void coefficient, it means that as those voids form, then the, uh, the re- nuclear reaction is slowed down. And so you, there, are, there are very simple, self-sustaining, self-correcting, reactor designs that mean that you can very safely use them at scale very little maintenance very little infrastructure to make them work properly and and to me to my mind if i was going to have to generate extreme amounts of energy for um 
you know, to green the deserts, mm -hmm. it would make a lot more sense to at least consider nuclear energy in the mix. But it's strange that, to my mind, that you didn't do this at all. Is that is that is that the case? You, you didn't even look at nuclear energy, let alone calculate the effects, right? No, we did not look at nuclear systems in this um, in this for this case. No, um, yeah, because from my understanding, nuclear plants require um, fresh water for cooling, as far as I know, and I guess, and so in such cases, perhaps nuclear plants don't make the best in in dry regions, like because like, it would just increase the fresh water demand. So. Well, you're going to have to increase the freshwater demand anyway because you're, you're, you've got to bring all this water in. So what I'm saying is that if you bring in salt, salt water to the nuclear plants and then boil that salt water in the nuclear plant, then you can use, you can directly boil so, so that you're, you're, you're inputting seawater into the nuclear plant. You're boiling away a fraction of that seawater as steam and then you're rejecting the brine, which then be taken by pipes or rivers back to the ocean. And so you're not using fresh water to generate, you, you know, you're, you're using the plants to generate fresh water. You're not putting fresh water into the plants. This, this is an entirely thermal process. But at the end of the day, this is, a, this is a, a, a side issue because you didn't look at it in the paper. I just want to see if you had considered it, but you haven't. So that's no. that. Um, so when you did this work, did you do this through basic calculation? Did you do it with an earth system model? Did you do it through an agricultural land model what what's the actual technique that you used um, to do this so we 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 got the sort sort of the land data and the water stress data it's lots of different data databases that we kind of used on matlab to get the input parameters and then to get the energy system model we used the loot energy system transition model and that is used to identify the least cost energy system uh, to power the desalination plants from 2030 onwards to 2100, based on their technology. So that, that would determine your, okay, so that determines your mixture of yeah. solar power versus wind or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So what I'm trying to understand is processes were you modeling here? I mean, were you looking at a general circulation model of the whole Earth system to see how this process of greening the deserts would affect the environment all over the world or did you only look at the local effects within the desert yeah we only looked at the the for the specific areas where we could have a forest or grow forest the the requirements for water over time or, or based on the lifetime of the different trees and the co2 sequestration of the trees based on their alum they have their specific tree elementary equations that we use that are already out there in literature and so we have the CO2 sequestration, we have the water demand of the trees, and then we know how much desalinated water is required. And we run the model to identify the energy system required to run the desalination plants. We also take into account the energy demand for pumping from the desalination plant on the coast to the site of afforestation. And yeah, and then in the final cost, we take into account the energy system, the irrigation system, which is not modeled. It's based on the area that area that is there, based on current data from literature and the area that we are finally irrigating. And energy system, irrigation system, the desalination system, uh, and the water transportation system. But crucially, you're not looking at the Earth system implications outside your area of study, okay? So no. you're not looking at how this, for example, would affect 
the airflow or the thermal ocean characteristics yeah. in the Arctic, for example. Yeah. No, we're not doing any of that. We we did account for some increase in precipitation, um, but that's also not very clear in literature right now. We don't really know how much growing forest, increasing tree canopy cover impacts rainfall. Where it falls, does it fall in around the region? deforestation and based on recent literature that is there, it's only up to 26% of the evapotranspiration that is re-precipitating. Um, so that data is not really available, and so we did not okay, take that so into account. Let, let, let me just get you to re repeat that and explore that. So you're saying that 20% of your evapotranspiration is re-precipitating. Yeah. So if you get 100 litres of water mm -hmm. that is released inside your desert yeah. area that you're adjusting, and yeah. 80% of that water is lost to other places in the Earth's system, yeah, and only 20% of it then refalls as rain. 26% based on... Okay, about, so about a quarter of it comes down as rain. Again. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, kind, that kind of answers the question that we discussed earlier, yeah. right, about yeah. the wetting of the environment, because if you were to just rely on the environmental methods that I was suggesting, yeah. you'd end up with about four times more uh, water demand than you would through irrigation. Because if, if you're not directly irrigating the trees uh -huh. and you are only irrigating the environment, um, you're basically saying that the water that's lost to evaporation, only a quarter of that will be usefully used elsewhere in the environment. And three quarters of that, which is lost if you're using spray irrigation or whatever, mm -hmm. would be wasted because it, it's transported out of the local area and into potentially areas of the earth system where it's wetter is that right we don't really know where the rainfall where all the extra water would come down as that is not clear and uh there isn't but it's much not necessarily reason. local and if it's not necessarily yeah. local the only places is worth the rain going is where areas are so arid that they can't sustain a carbon-rich biome right and yeah. if they sustain a carbon-rich biome, then adding extra water doesn't necessarily make any difference, right? So if you take, for example, somewhere that's quite dry, the southwestern part of Canada, for example, yeah, okay. has got has got the northern part of the Rocky Mountains, right? Has got quite an, it's a relatively arid forest environment. It's, okay. it's enough to sustain trees, okay? So whereas if you think about something like Western England, for example, mm. where is bordering on rainforest. And in fact, there are quite large patches of temperate rainforest yeah. in Western England, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so tr the, the, the rainforest doesn't actually store much more carbon than the, you know, the sort of redwoods or sequoias or coniferous forests that grow out in the Western US and therefore mm -hmm. adding extra rain in that situation. It might change the distribution of plants, but it doesn't actually give you more carbon storage and ecosystem and therefore adding extra water doesn't really do anything it's not helping you it's just changing your species distribution so you want to concentrate your water on areas where it will move you from one biome to the other so moving you from mm -hmm. deserts to grasslands or from grasslands to forest or potentially in your case directly from desert all the way to forests by getting it very very wet right mm -hmm. so or relatively very wet not necessarily wet by comparison with other forests like the yeah. rainforest right so um, okay, well, I wanted to ask you, what I mean, what's your view on this whole thing? I mean, is this just an intellectual exercise, or is this something you actually think is serious? Because to my mind, it yeah. sounds really quite silly, if I'm honest. Well, actually, 
I there are there is actually a project on this. They do this in Hawaii. I think this called terraformation, and they actually use desalination plants broadened with solar PV um, to grow uh, to restore sandalwood plantations in Hawaii. And to them, for them at least, it seems to be working. Um, so well, look, I'm not. Re- hold on, I'm not. I'm not doubting that you could get a desalination plant to work. That's mm-hmm. obviously the case. There are desalination plants. Yeah. I'm not doubting that solar energy will become cheaper in a few years. Yeah. That is obvious. Once it's already cheaper, something that we, but yeah, yeah, it's getting yeah. cheaper yeah. every year. And yeah. you know, it's on a downtrend. It might, yeah. be, it might be a noisy downtrend, but it's still a downtrend, right? So it doesn't. I don't doubt that, and it's obviously the case that you can, by wetting desert areas, you can allow it to support other types of plants and animals, right? That's mm-hmm. again obvious. What and what seems silly to me is mm-hmm. that is 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 two things. So firstly, that just the sheer industrial scale of doing all of this, mm-hmm. you know, absent any, you know, I can understand if you wanted to use the deserts to grow crops in or whatever, and and the main benefit was agricultural. So, for example, if you want to grow lots of date palms and we all start eating lots of dates, then that, that might seem sort of semi-sensible. I can imagine that we might, you know, date, date, dates are something we could potentially eat a lot more of. I mean, like if you, it's not like, I don't know, you can't eat a great deal of cranberries, for example. Nobody could make a major part of their diet out of cranberries, but you mm-hmm. can make quite a large part of your diet out of dates if you want to. It can be a significant part of your calorie intake, right? So I could understand if you're proposing an agricultural model based on date irrigation, you know, have big areas of plantations for things like oil palms, so why not have date palms, right? The idea that we're just going to cover up all of the deserts of the world or, you know, large parts of the deserts of the world with trees just to grow carbon seems to be quite fanciful, really. I think, and it's- I think, I think the, the point is it's not just about removing carbon. The... When in the study, we there are two parts. So there is the restoration of land that has been, for example, cut down for agriculture and is barren now because it can't be used. And so you can restore those kinds of degraded land and restore the forest in those areas. And then there is also the aspect of growing forest on desert lands. I The fact that um, the, like countries in the Middle East including, for example, Egypt, and also are looking at restoring their degraded desert lands with trees. Yes, it's not maybe the tree mix that we have here. It might be more native species, although we do consider date palms in the study, but they would have more sort of different trees that grow local fruits for the, the population. I I think that would bring a lot of benefits to those regions because they're very they're because of climate impact they're becoming very very hot and they have they, they for example in Iraq they have sandstorms very often and there is no rain there I think if you grow if you restore forests in those regions it would help a lot with those kind of issues for yeah so and also with cooling down the the areas for example I just I just saw this yesterday in Sydney, if the difference between growing, if you have, might be a bit different, but these are urban trees, of course, lining urban, lining roads with urban trees and the impacts of shading is like a huge difference on the local temperature. Um, 
And so depending on the type of country we're looking at, I think this makes a big difference. And it's not just about the CO2 removal. It's about all the other impacts that the trees provide to those areas. And yeah, but you didn't model before, those, did you? You only modeled the CO2 costs, right? Yeah, because I mean, this was like a first, like a first step. And yeah, those are things that need to be considered and they would bring huge benefits, huge other extra benefits to the, the countries. But the other, it, the other concern I've got about the way that this work has been done is because mm-hmm. you haven't done an Earth system model on this. So we don't know what the climate yeah. effects are going to be, the effects on yeah. you know, ocean currents and atmospheric. Now, it might, for example, cause breakup of cloud banks in other areas that causes significant warming. So yeah. it's all very well to say, oh, well, our albedo effect is um, negated after six years and the carbon benefit becomes apparent after that. But if yeah. you make circulation changes that break up a marine cloud deck so that instead of having a big belt of thick white cloud, you end yeah. up with patchy band of little fluffy clouds then you'll end up with a massive albedo effect that you haven't accounted for in your model so i mean i don't i don't find i don't i don't think i'm not saying this is a silly study yeah but i think it's a study about an idea which is in itself a bit silly and also i think that bearing in mind the the nature of this work it would have been sensible to have used an assistant model to appraise it more fully because i don't think that you can nail down a carbon cost when you're not considering the albedo effect globally and also the more um the more potentially more extensive changes to ocean and atmosphere circulation that could arise from making such very very large changes to yeah. the uh, to the earth's surface particularly mm-hmm. from an albedo point of view but also from a hydrological point of view as well, I mean, you're moving in a great deal of water around yeah. and that's going to make a difference to what, what happens in terms of other areas. So, you know, to first order, you'd expect a, an effect where semi-desert areas that are around your desert areas that you're greening are themselves going to get a bit greener because there would yeah. be some additional precipitation, right? And so yeah. you probably find areas that around your... So if you've got areas of sort of sparse grassland like the Sahel, so mm-hmm. not the sort of the full Sahara, but you've got the Sahel mm-hmm. region that's around the Sahara, then you'd expect that that area would become, you know, potentially tend to f- turn to forest because it's already, you know, wet enough to have grassland and some scrub, right? And then as mm-hmm. you wet it a bit further, you might find it turns into dense canopy forest. Yeah. And that would, again, potentially store some carbon, but it would also, um, you'd also have to look at, again, at the albedo effect because, again, mm-hmm. the, Sahara, the Sahel is quite dry. There's a lot of, you know, dusty, open, and then you get a few isolated trees in, in the Sahel, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, not an area I've been to, but I've seen quite a lot of pictures of it at one time or another. So, yeah. I, you know, I, I think this is an interesting idea in, in as much as it's quite curious and novel, but it, yeah. um, but it doesn't seem to have been researched in a way that allows us to really understand whether it might be a good idea or not. So, yeah. I, I'm kind of I'm sort of a bit unsure as to my yeah. response to that. I mean, should I regard this as being a study that's fundamentally inadequate and doesn't really address the research question or do I just regard it as preliminary it's hard it's hard to hard to judge really how 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 people should see your paper I think you're implying that it's just a preliminary study and you know, there's a lot of work necessary and people shouldn't yeah. think too much about well I, that, think, right? I think the thing that we're focusing on here is how much CO2 could be captured and how much because we are looking looked at it from an energy system point of view, from the from a desalination point of view, and because that's our background, and we sort of coupled it to to forest and understanding how much water demand and so on. 
And of course, like I agree, we need to look into an art system, put into an art system model and see how it impacts the the whole environment. That is quite very like another detailed level of research because there's not even much work done on that. Even though there is afforestation, for example, in IAMs and so on, but like it's not really discussed how they impact the the whole earth system model. Um, so that is something that needs to be looked into, I agree. Um, but I, I mean, I can also see the benefits of this, and I don't think it should be just looked at as just a CO2 removal option. There are other things, um, and that needs to be looked into further. No, I understand, but you didn't actually include that in your study. And I, I yeah. think it would have been a lot better had you included, for example, the value of agricultural products that could have been derived or timber or whatever, because I think that to get a meaningful cost for this, mm-hmm. you, you can't really consider how, if you're creating like an industrialised landscape where you're putting all of this ar- irrigation equipment in, yeah. you're inevitably going to be putting access, at least tracks, if not yeah, roads, sure. because you can't build the irrigation infrastructure if there's nothing, if yeah, you can't get sure. to it, yeah. right? Yeah. And so if you're going to do that, and you're also going to be doing things like road planning as well, so it's not mm-hmm. just going to be like a kind of disordered forest, you're going to have... Yeah orderly rows of trees to some extent i mean you might you might random, randomize them a bit but you're gonna yeah. have some degree of order in the landscape yeah and they and might but it's, well, it's very suited to industrial agroforestry you, you'd be creating a landscape which would be you know suitable for plantation type use of trees and even if you had other plants that are growing around the trees in an agroforestry type manner so you're mixing conventional farming and um, crops by by planting crops around the trees then mm-hmm. you're you know the whole thing fits together in industrial landscape so it seems to be a very kind of almost like a glib paper really that, that overlooks a lot of the earth system complexities but also if you were just to take the view that you want to look at the, the immediate local effects then it also overlooks the the potential economic benefits so i'm i think it's an interesting kind of first pass at this but yeah. it kind of raises more questions than it answers really does it not um, yeah, I think uh, I I find this like this aspect interesting because it's the like I it's the it's this idea of adding bringing in water like to arid regions and growing forests and of course that in itself has so many other so many other impacts on the environment that is something that needs to be addressed I agree the benefits of such systems on um, social benefits, ecological benefits, all of these things needs to be considered to get a more holistic view of such a project. And it would vary from country to country, of course. Those are things that can be studied and probably need to be studied. But this was sort of, it's like, there's so much that can be done. And this was sort of, this was like a first look at using uh, these renewable energy and desalination to first grow the trees and then the next steps are looking at the other impacts of such a system. I want to understand how you work more generally. You imply that what you're doing is forestry. So you mentioned that you're in Finland, but you come from Sri Lanka, is that right? Yeah. I mean, that's an odd combination of countries. Finland's not a massive destination and Sri Lanka's not a massive yeah. source. So you're probably one of the few people that have ended up making that journey. Is that right? Uh, yes. Well, actually, I have not done forestry before. I worked on desalination and renewable energy systems. So this is like a first sort of step into combining combining that with forestry. Um, 
And I actually, I am from Sri Lanka, but I grew up in Saudi Arabia. So I am Australia. So I'm kind of familiar with arid desert environments and desalination systems. Um, and then I moved to Finland, yeah. And where are you in your career? Are you, you, you know, PhD, early career researcher? Are you professor? Yes, or I, 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 no, I just, I'm an early career researcher. So I'm a postdoc yeah. researcher. Postdoc, okay. Yeah. Cool. And what's your background? Um, I have a background in, you mean in terms of? Yeah, is your background in physics or what? Uh, in, actually, I did sort of telecommunications engineering and then solar production engineering. Okay, so you come yeah. from a utility sort of energy background into, yeah. the, into your work, right? Okay, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Which is kind of implies why you sort of naturally lean to an Earth system model in the first place so yeah. okay that's it gives an idea of why you approach the problem in the way that you've appro- approached it right so yeah. okay well that's interesting and then what other work have you got planned i mean you kind of kicked off this field here yeah. potentially kicked off this field mm-hmm. so where where does this go next what's the what's the plan from here uh, well I, I actually think the next research step would be to look into the impacts of uh, this on rainfall and actually like you suggested looking at earth system models integrating this into an earth system model i've not played with those at all so this would be quite quite interesting there's a reason well, you might find there's someone out. listening on a podcast who wants to connect with you so yeah. i guess they can reach out through your institution or whatever yeah uh, yeah okay well that's um well, that's kind of interesting yeah. and i just want to add there's actually a paper that came out um, i think last a few days ago maybe on top, they talked actually, it was like linking the impact of tropical deforestation um, on rainfall. So it was quite okay. interesting, I thought. So, yeah. All right. Well, that's all. I'm a bit flummoxed by this because, on the one hand, I kind of I hate the oversimplification of your paper, but equally, yeah. I, I kind of quite like the fact that people come up with stuff. When I'm writing papers, I like to write them like you do. You know, you mm-hmm. kind of do them quick and dirty and send them out and just sort of move the forward field forward incrementally but when i'm reading papers i want all my questions answered and it's very frustrating can i just ask you about your publication journey so you published this in the nature journal and generally i I kind of think of nature as being the place where egomaniacs and willy wavers publish so why why did you pick nature how difficult or easy was it to get published in nature and it was nature sustainability nature sustainability and so how easy or difficult it was it um, I thought I I had never put like as a first author I've never published in nature papers before so this was my first time with me and my supervisor and uh, yeah I thought the review process was really actually quite helpful the the reviewers had lots of, I think they came from different backgrounds so they all had their different aspects some came from this carbon forest background so they had all these questions on the albedo effect and so on and the impacts on local temperature and all that stuff. So that was not something that we had initially sort of considered, but then we got more into it and we understood where the review was coming from. So, uh, and then there was a desalination reviewer as well and solar energy system based reviewer. It, I thought the review process was very helpful. And did you have to shop it around a number of journals before getting it accepted or was it something that... Um... You, yeah. you only had to go to one journal. No, we tried Nature Energy first, and they were not keen on it. Um, and then yeah, Nature Energy bizarrely has a higher impact factor, and it's harder to get into 
than yeah. actual nature. Which is really bizarre. I like, wouldn't have thought that would be the case, but it's true. And we thought it would be more suitable for nature energy because it has more of an energy system kind of point of view, but but we were not successful there. And then we tried nature climate change, which was kind of on the edge, but they were not. They didn't like it either. But nature sustainability liked it, so we're like, okay, great. Okay, so you've very much focused on shopping around nature. You yeah. didn't think about sending it to anybody else then? No, no, not the first. But it was like, okay, if nature sustainability doesn't like it, then we can try something else. Okay, fair enough. Well, I don't. I'm not surprisingly, I haven't come across many papers in nature sustainability doing what I'm doing. Is it, is it quite a high impact journal? Because I mean, obviously, the nature stable varies quite a bit, doesn't it? I mean, nature and nature energy mm-hmm. are very high impact factor, right? Well, among oh, yeah. highest impact factors of any journal. Mm-hmm. I think nature sustainability and is is less. I'm not saying less well regarded, but yeah. you know, it's it's got a lower impact factor and stuff. I think it has definitely a lower impact factor than nature energy. I think it's around mid twenties. Um, I think nature energy is like forties. I I'm not. I find it surprising that a paper which is quite simple got into such a high impact journal. I mean, I'm not saying that it's a bad idea to yeah. publish in. Uh, high impact uh, it's published simple papers but i'm surprised that a simple paper would get into a very high impact journal it did take so, quite a bit of work to get this but okay. uh, I, I think i think the idea is simple but i think to kind of bring it to this sort of detail just looking at every component and everything it was quite it takes a bit of it was quite intensive to get it to this stage yeah you say yeah you say that but you didn't look at every component you didn't look at the agricultural outfits and stuff like that right so so many components to look into okay so is there anything else that you want to say um uh about your your work and your paper or does that sum it up uh yeah i think no i i think that is all it sums it up yeah okay well i'm going to um sum up by desk rejecting your paper something you've never done on reviewer two it's not that i don't like the paper i just think it's suitable for another journal i think it's insufficiently sophisticated for a 20s impact journal and you should you should send it to somewhere where where it's more suited to preliminary studies of uh, new concepts a sort of playpen for papers where they go when they're toddlers and they can throw their coloured bricks around and uh, try and scratch and bite other toddler papers as they do. And uh, when it's developed a bit more with an earth system model and um, some better understanding of what your agricultural outputs might be, then you can come back and play with the big boys in uh, 20 impact factor journals. So there you go. There's my summary. (laughs) Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. (laughs) Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye.